So it might not seem like it, but it's the middle of the day here in Beijing. The air is so polluted that it's darkened the sky. Most of the progress towards the environment and saving it and getting rid of carbon, etc., has been done on a local level. Some people with the goal wow. of making energy both cheaper but also completely clean. And so, with the right innovation. Uh, clean energy is actually cheaper than dirty. World's energy. biggest energy agencies believe the oil market will rebalance by the second half of this year, but there are still questions about price. Brent crude is down by more than. We will unleash the power of American energy, including shale, oil, natural gas, and clean coal. What we're going to do, folks, is going to be so special. Special. Hello, and welcome to Off the Charts, the podcast of the Energy Policy Institute at the University of Chicago, also known as EPIC. I'm your host, Jeff McMahon. This is the second of two episodes featuring Illinois Representative Sean Caston, a freshman member of Congress with a strong background in energy policy and clean energy entrepreneurship. Caston's staff is working on 50 climate-related bills he plans to introduce in Congress. In our previous episode, Axios Energy reporter Amy Harder talked to Kasten about the atmosphere surrounding climate and energy policy in the 116th Congress. In this episode, Harder and Kasten are joined by Michael Greenstone, the Milton Friedman Distinguished Service Professor in Economics and the Director of the Energy Policy Institute at the University of Chicago. The three get much deeper into the weeds of energy policy than in the prior conversation. Let's join them. Well, it's great to be here with the Congressman and Michael. Um, my name, of course, is Amy Harder, and we're here to talk about uh, the energy and environment landscape in Congress and some of the underlying energy trends there. Um, Congressman Kasten, you're a rare breed of lawmaker in that you have an energy background and you're a scientist. And we don't have a lot of those in the US Congress these days. So I want to get a little bit wonky on this podcast, which I think is the point of podcasts. Uh, Congress is suddenly talking about energy and climate change more than it has in the last decade. So your timing for your, your first term is, is going pretty well, I would say. Uh, I wish we were doing more, but yes, there seems to be a bipartisan commitment that climate change is real, um, that it's man-made. and. That's nothing that deserves praise, given 100 years of, of evidence, but it's, but it's a directional improvement. And Michael, you spent a lot of time in the Obama administration when the dynamic in Congress was very different. What are some of your observations for how Congress is addressing climate change now compared to how it did? Yeah, so actually, when I was there, there was kind of the last vestiges of everyone agreeing that there was climate change, uh, maybe some differences in agreement on how to handle it. But... Then there was a dark winter for a long period of time, uh, and climate seems to be having a moment. Uh, it's a little bit hard to understand what happened, but it's, it's having a moment. And we talk about climate change. I really see climate change and energy as two sides of the same coin. You can't really talk about one without the other, because uh, greenhouse gas emissions from the energy sector are far and away the, the biggest driver of human-driven climate change. And so... You know, sometimes people say, do you cover climate change or do you cover energy? And I say I cover both. And I would presume for, for you two as well, with your research, Michael, and your legislative work, you would also agree that you can't really separate them. Uh, in general, I agree. I think the, it, most, of the, most of the easy carbon to reduce, if you can say it that way, is in the energy sector. The, the parts that I think are really hard 
um, are the ones that go beyond energy because we still have to figure out, you know, how do you make fertilizer to feed the population? And so we still have, I, I, I wouldn't limit to energy, but I would say that the places where the economics, you can see a path are in the energy sector. I want to dive a little bit into what um, has become a buzzword this Congress, and that's innovation. It's something we've heard a lot from Republicans in particular. It seems to be a word that everybody can love, in part because its definition is so uh, in the eye of the beholder. So how would you two define innovation when it comes to the energy space? Um, so I'll be honest, I, I don't, I kind of instinctively reject the, the innovation conversation because I find that over the course of my career, spent 20 years in the energy space, the, the two easiest ways to persuade people that we don't need to act is to either say um, the science isn't real or the technology isn't ready. And there's a bipartisan consensus on innovation because everybody likes talking about sexy new technologies and everybody wants to have the ribbon cutting in their district for the super cool new plant. But there's a danger, in, I find, in talking about that because it causes us to take our eye off, off some, some self-evident truths like the fact that we're about half as efficient per dollar of GDP as most of our trading partners, like the fact that the Thomas Edison's first power plant was about twice as efficient as the electric grid is today. These, these are not challenges of innovation. These are challenges of why are we not deploying technologies that could make us both wealthier and more fuel efficient. And that's to take nothing away from the importance of innovation. But the I, I find myself skeptical when the conversation starts there because it's often it's often a marker that we're going to get to a and therefore it's too early to act. And we have to start acting. And so what do you think is holding back innovation? Oh, can I jump in? Please. I think, actually, uh, I agree with the congressman uh, about much of what he said about innovation. And I think often uh, it's very a strange approach to innovation. It's kind of like an engineering approach to innovation. I want to build this particular solar panel or this particular battery. Uh, and what it misses is that we have a very long history that if you send a market signal, innovators will act. Uh, and I suspect if we sent a market signal, there would be all kinds of innovation in areas that we can't predict. Surely cars, uh, internal combustion engine cars would get more efficient with respect to carbon, a whole series of things. And I think uh, oftentimes when people talk about innovation, it is a little bit of a dodge away from letting the market determine where the best uh, innovations are with respect to carbon. Yeah, I just, I just want to echo and just tell a, <clears throat> a very specific story. And Back in about 2003, New England created the forward capacity market for energy that said that load-sided generation, load-sided demand response could participate in capacity markets. This is where you the said, wonky You said we in. could get wonky, I'm going to get wonky. Um, what that meant practically is that energy consumers could get paid for reducing their demand on the grid in the same way that energy generators get paid to provide capacity to the grid. And once that rule was in place, we built a, a small cogen plant at the Ethan Allen Furniture Plant up in Northeast Kingdom of Vermont. And we were able to remotely dispatch that plant and it got paid to participate. And I got interviewed by someone who was saying, this is really the future of smart grids because now we have all this great technology to go and do this. And to your point, Michael, I said this was $1,000 worth of equipment off the shelf at Radio Shack. Um, 
it's not that I didn't have the ability to do this before. It's that no one was paying me to do it before. Yeah. Um, and so now here we were providing a grid service instead of just providing benefit for our customer because people said this is a value that we want you to participate in. But if you don't put the prices there, people don't. You know, just to, you know, we're agreeing with each other probably too much, but it is a little strange to talk about innovation when there isn't a market for the product. Uh, So one example that I hear from Republicans, for example, I just sat sat down recently with a Republican congressman, Tom Reed of New York, who's been, um, you know, pretty forward on this issue, acknowledging climate change is an issue and wanting to put forward policies. But he's pretty much in this camp that innovation can do it um, without some sort of price mechanism. Of course, Michael has done a lot of work on carbon taxes. Uh, w- what Congressman Reed said, he, he cited this example, which I've heard from others, and that is, well, Ford didn't need a carbon tax. It innovated its way in front of the horse and buggy. So why do you think, you know, t- t- to put forward his argument, why can't we expect today a transition to far cleaner sources of energy like what we saw with the horse and buggy why do you agree that those could be analogous and if not why not look we don't need innovation in um, how quickly you can roll down your windows and cars or uh, power steering we need innovation in reducing co2 per mile driven Uh, and right now we don't have a price signal to cause people in their garage people at uh, conglomerates or international firms to devote R&D to that. And so that's, you know, I think that's kind of a slightly confused example with due respect to the congressman. Yeah, yeah and I'd, I I guess at, at the risk of, um, I don't mean to totally poo-poo innovation, I just wouldn't limit it to technology because there are innovations. I mean, if we actually came up with a, with a way to monetize and value all the externalities associated with environmental damage and, and incentivize people to reduce them, that would be pretty innovative, right? It's not a technology innovation, but it would drive a lot of other technologies forward. The, it, in all the time that, it, it, and I think any of, any of our listeners here who have spent any time in the energy efficiency world can probably share these stories. There is not a, a business in the world that sells energy efficiency um, that doesn't know in their gut that if you can't show industrials a two-year payback, they won't buy it. That means that basically we have a ton of roughly 40% compound annual return capital investments that are not being made because of some defect in the way that people are making capital investment decisions. We can have a rich conversation. There's good reasons for why that happens. But when you have two-year paybacks that would save energy, save money, make people better returns on their capital than they can get anywhere else in the market and they're not being made, the problem isn't a lack of technology. So let's go back to this, this idea of energy efficiency because I know it's something that you guys have both spent a good bit of your work on. Energy efficiency uh, is a little bit like innovation, that everybody likes it, but not um, enough to really passing these sort of big bills on it. I remember years ago, the Senate for years was debating this energy efficiency bill, and it just kept getting watered down until there was almost nothing in it. And then finally it passed. Uh, what is it about energy efficiency, we can just start with you, Congressman, about why is it that more companies aren't doing it if it could save them money? Um, so to go back to my example before, and, and what I think most economist models get wrong, is that every industrial has basically three buckets of how they how they spend their capital budgets every year. The first bucket is the stuff that they are required to do by law, 
And if they make a return, it's a happy benefit. You've got, you know, OSHA compliance rules. You've got environmental permitting rules you've got to come into compliance with. You know, some series of, of mandated investment. And that's, these are all good. We are happy to live in a society where we mandate that, you know, handicapped folks have access to buildings. These are good things to do. But they don't get a return on that. If there is any money left, the next bucket of capital that industrials will spend every year is in is in core investments that will make their business more competitive in the space that they live and breathe. So the the paper mill will invest in a new paper drying machine. The steel mill will invest in an upgrade to their blast furnace. If there's any money after that, you've got this whole list of non-core investments that your your various plant managers and engineers have come through forward through the year and they're saying, "Hey boss, I've got this thing. It's not an area of expertise. It's not really our mainline business." but it's got a 40% return. The reason why those industrials say, unless you got a two-year payback, I'm not coming through, is because they are well-managed companies who say, I do not want my employees focusing on non-core elements of our business. I used to tell all our salesmen, I said, if you think it's easy to sell this, then convince me to buy a hot stock tip with our company dollars. Right? It's, it's the same basic question. And so a well-run business that is um, mission-driven is going to necessarily put a very high uh, implicit cost of capital on on energy conservation, except in, in, except in those businesses that have made a conscious decision to make energy conservation part of their mission. And and I'd give you some optimism on it because when we when we passed the Energy Policy Act in '92 and told utilities where their mainline business is making energy that um, we are going to preferentially dispatch assets based on the cost, their marginal cost of production instead of just your obligation to serve rules under the old monopoly rules. The nuclear plant capacity f factor went from 60% to 90%. We built 200,000 megawatts of combined cycle gas turbines. And our CO2 emissions per megawatt hour in the country are now down almost 30% from where they were then, and the price of electricity is down by 6%. So we have gotten in, in, a lot more energy efficient. In, yeah, so in an industry where where energy was their core business, once we got the market signals right, to Michael's point, they actually embraced energy efficiency. Where this low-hanging fruit is is in the rest of the industrial sector where that's not their core business. And we got a lot of opportunities to deploy that technology, but you've got to start by recognizing that it's they're inherently going to be very risk-averse when it comes to conserving energy. Michael, you have a slightly different take, I think, on energy efficiency. Can you talk about some of the research that you've done? Yeah, so I think probably a big difference between what we've, uh, I've done uh, and what the congressman has done is almost all my work has been in the residential sector. Uh, and I suspect, the, so let me first just put a little bubble of skepticism about what the congressman has said, which is at its core, he's saying there's $20 bills laying around and someone's not picking them up. Now, he has a good story for why that might be true. Uh, in the industrial sector. Most of my own research has been in the residential sector where I think people actually thought there were more $20 bills laying around in the sense that people don't operate their households as profit-maximizing households. And what I found from a series of uh, work uh, looking at residential energy efficiency uh, in primarily in Michigan and Wisconsin and some uh, other places is that the returns to energy efficiency investments in the residential sector are actually quite low. Uh, they're 
both low in an absolute sense, and they're lower than the engineering models predict they are, uh, predict they will be. Uh, and that, that came as quite a surprise, and it makes me think uh, that if we're looking for inexpensive reductions in CO2, that's not the best place to look. Uh, and I guess more broadly, it feeds into my general view that it's hard for government to know exactly where the best deals are, uh, and that, you know, to not to be a broken record, but that if we send a broad price signal, people will pick up on it and figure out what to do. As opposed yep. to targeted energy efficiency mandates. Yeah, or targeted use of particular technologies or R&D in particular technologies. When we look at, you know, the global greenhouse gas reductions goals that are embedded in, say, the Paris Climate Agreement, you know, energy efficiency is something like 42% of the emissions reductions out there. So there appears to be a ton of gains in this space. How does one get to those reductions? Is it efficiency mandates at the commercial level? Is it is it both also at the at the, at the residential I, you know, level? I'm very concerned. I think it's from both places. And I'm very concerned that a lot of what underlies that comes from these kind of engineering models of what would the optimal house look like. Uh, and, you know, the truth is, uh, a lot of that is like some model house in the Lawrence Berkeley campus. Uh, but it's not like a house that I live in or that my children live in you know, that leave doors open or windows undone and things like that. And the real, ultimately, I think what will de what determines the returns are the real world, real world returns, not the potential returns that engineering models uh, produce. And I think too often those kind of projections you're talking about rely on kind of some optimal world that doesn't quite exist. So I want to just comment on something Michael said, and I think we may, we may agree that there's differences between the residential and other sectors. In the, in the industrial and to some degree some of the commercial and institutional sectors, the energy-consuming equipment is, has a very high load factor. You're, you know, you've got a two-, three-shift-a-day manufacturer. That, you know, that motor that's sitting there is going to run all the time. And so when you're looking at the lifetime cost of that motor, you're dominated by the operating cost of the motor because that's where you spend most of your money. And so efficiency really matters, and there's big opportunities for saving. When you get into the residential environment, most of the energy-consuming equipment in your home spends most of its time not running, whether it's a car parked in your driveway for, you know, for 18 hours a day or a toaster that's not running or a TV that's not running. I mean, other than your refrigerator and your air conditioner, most of the stuff is not being used very often. And so the life cycle cost of that thing is more a function of your, your initial purchase price, not your operating cost. So it, wouldn't, it doesn't surprise me to hear you say that the actual return on those investments from a savings perspective isn't that high. To me, that doesn't yeah. say that there isn't a role for policy, but that in one environment, the policy role is let's figure out how to get people to understand the variable cost and control that. And the other one, it's what can we do from a policy side to lower the capital cost? For sure, there's always a role for information uh, and providing consumers with good information. There's, there, there's no, that's like a classic role for government. You know, I, if I could just, since you opened the door to wonkiness. Uh, <laughs> uh, I wasn't but, aware we hadn't already run through that door. Yeah. <laughs> well, we can go take, back <laughs> through it a couple more yeah, times. Yeah, right. Uh, let's totally bathe ourselves, turn on the water, the whole thing. Um, I think a good way to think about this problem is like, where's the market failure? Uh, and so it's, 
I think in the climate case, there are really two. Uh, one is that when I pollute, I cause climate change, and that's going to make everyone else's life more complicated, and so that should be penalized. The second, there is an R&D failure uh, or innovation failure, and that's that some firms, uh, if they're not going to get all the benefits of their innovation, then they're going to do less of it, uh, and so we should subsidize that. And there's clearly a, I What's think, an example of that? Yeah, so like basic R&D at the beginning of the life cycle of a new technology, I'm going to invent something, but I can't appropriate all the ideas. You might steal some of the, or some of the ideas might flow over and you might start a firm based on those ideas. Tesla's producing all kinds of benefits for the entire EV industry. Uh, and so there's not enough innovation going on because people aren't going to pay. There's to, not enough Teslas. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, there's not, they're not going to, uh, Tesla's not, you could say Tesla's not investing enough hmm. uh, because they're not recouping all the benefits of their investments. Uh, some of that's flowing over to GM and Ford and other companies. Uh, and so you would want to subsidize that kind of activity. Uh, the same Tesla thing. Tesla has been subsidized. The, and, and they have been greatly subsidized <laughs> for sure. Uh, m- maybe enough, but it's a case for Tesla being subsidized at all. Uh, and so that you definitely want to, I think also like in the early stages of deployment of new technologies, there's a lot of learning that goes on that's generic. It's not only captured by the firm that's installing the solar panel or whatever it is, and that's also something you would want to subsidize. But I think coming back to what the market failure was, the problem you were trying to solve is always a good exercise in thinking about what's the role for government. Do you think a, a price on carbon emissions could do a better job at driving energy efficiency than anything else? I do. Um, so I'm a little bit of a heretic on carbon pricing. Um, I Good, think we can have some disagreement. Yes, yeah. we, will, uh, the, we should absolutely put a price on the externality, and we should make sure that that flows to the people who are going to lower carbon. I think that we need to be very careful not to presume that a price on one's competitor is an incentive for you. And there's a lot of economic models that assume that those things are, are, are equivalent. And I, what you is know, that? I didn't quite follow that. Well, meaning that let's say that I'm sitting before my board, as I have been many times in my past life, and trying to get approval for a project that's going to meaningfully reduce CO2 emissions. And I tell my board, the coal plant next door just got a carbon tax. The board says, why do I care? Say, well, because they're going to have to pay this extra fine. Are they going to pass it along to their customers? Are Are their shareholders going to eat it in lower margins? I don't know. If they pass it along to customers, how's it, in fact, the power price that you're going to get? Well, it kind of depends. In the long term, it'll probably factor into the power price, at which point my board says, fine, put it in the upside case, but it's not a basis of our investment decision. On the other hand, if we say you're reducing a ton of carbon, it is, it is a value in your work. There's a social value of reducing that ton of carbon, and we want to make sure that we pay people who are reducing that ton of carbon an amount equal to the social value. And I go to the same board and say, hey, I'm getting $50 a ton of carbon I reduce. Great, put it in. You have now differentially impacted my, my ability to make that decision. And so they're, they're two wholly separate questions. And I think, we've, I think in the carbon regulatory space, we've made a lot of assumptions that those two are the same, and we would never make them in other industries. So when, you know, when Wells Fargo got $3 billion of fines last year, there was no economist who said Citibank's interest rates are going to fall. And yet, <clears throat> when we have conversations saying if we put a price on the dirty guys, the clean guys will make more money. And it's not my experience that that's such a, as direct a link as a lot of the economic models mm-hmm. assume. What do you think about that, Michael? Um, I'm trying to wrap my mind around, and 
So what does that mean about carbon pricing? Um, it means that the carrot is important. The stick is not, clear, not obviously important. We should price, but the price should be applied on the carrot because the goal is to reduce carbon. If, if reducing carbon comes about um, with or without an increase in the price of energy, I don't, I'm agnostic on that question. But we got to get the carbon down. You know, I think the I think in the my personal view is that the ideal structure is a you know the old early tradable permit models because if I'm a polluter and you're a cleaner and I'm paying you mm-hmm. for the right to pollute, you have now received an incentive. I've received a penalty, and if we structure it right, you know, m- maybe the actual price of energy on the other side doesn't change because the the transaction is between you and I. But now I've cap provided and trade, a, basically. Is well, what you're saying? It, cap and trade. Although cap and trade is, it's a flavor of tradable permits, and we got into a whole bunch of other complexities there. But, but my point is that in that case, we've got whatever, whatever social justice reason we may have to penalize the bad actors, if you will, and the incentive to the good actors. But that's a very different calculus than a tax on the, on the good actors. And my view is that the single worst thing we could do is cap and dividend or tax and dividend. Hmm. Because if I do a tax and dividend, I've raised the price of energy, I've taken the proceeds, and I've given it to a whole lot of people who are not people who are reducing energy. And so you've ended up with a situation where there is very little incentive to actually reduce CO2 in a, in a tax and dividend model unless you assume that there is only one entity who is, doing, who is providing all of our energy. Because if I'm doing this all from my own balance sheet, I can say, well, I'll stop building a coal plant, I'll build a solar plant, it's all left pocket, right pocket. But as soon as those pockets are in different sets of pants, it's a very complicated economic argument that argues that it mm-hmm. makes a difference. And I, I say this as someone who has deployed power projects in, in, in jurisdictions that had you know, Reggie-type cap-and-trade models, um, um, Canadian-type tax models, and I can tell you that the tax model, we all, our boards always said, eh, it's... Doesn't yeah, matter. The so, cap and the uh, cap and dividend plan is really gaining prominence in Congress right now. So I want to I want to focus on that for, for a moment and get your take, Michael. But basically, there's growing <clears throat> Republican support for this idea that they think if the money can go back to consumers, it would blunt the political blowback that they might get for higher energy costs. But I see your point that, in fact, it could. Because if the goal is achieved that emissions go down, then the money going to these people will also go down. Yeah, and I, I think we have to be, you know, to your point, Michael, we have to start by asking what it is we're trying to achieve. The goal of carbon regulation is to reduce the bloody carbon. If we can pass a bill that has a carbon regulation title that's politically easy to pass, but it doesn't reduce carbon, we have failed. And, and there's a lot of pressure because I think there's a, look, there's a, I, I get it, right? If I could go back to my constituents and say, you're all going to get an extra thousand bucks on your tax return this year, you know, they'll be pretty happy with me. But that's not necessarily going to lead to a reduction in carbon, right? And if I don't make sure that these policies incentivize people to build the assets of a low carbon future, because at the end of the day, once these assets are built, they run. Nobody ever turned off a solar panel because the price of power was too low. Right. So we got to figure out how to get those boards of directors who are sitting there saying, yes, this has now differentially increased my incentive to make the investment. And if the price of power goes up or down in the future because the coal plant does or doesn't pass this along, it doesn't change whether or not that asset runs. So I think the congressmen are in slightly different places on this. I think if we got the price, uh, so let's just take the cap and dividend one. That's, I think, a very concrete way to think about it. Uh, 
the standard economic models of which I think are correct in the setting uh, would be that if there was a tax on carbon uh, and we A, took the money and poured it in the ocean, B, took the money, put it in general revenues, C, gave it back to all the people, the effect on carbon would be exactly the same. Uh, and mainly I, because... I agree, it would, have, it would have no effect in either of those cases. No, the, because the polluters would <laughs> face this higher price for uh, emitting. Uh, so, so, so here's the, the big problem I have with that is that at the end of the day, we as a country want to have access to energy, right? And I have absolutely no question that putting a tax on carbon will raise the price of energy. It's a completely separate... But not separate all energy, only energy that has carbon no, attached no, to it. Uh, no, I understand, but it, it, it is, won't raise it the is price then of a solar. separate question of will it incentivize people to build the clean energy sources that are going to replace it. And if you give me an incentive, I will build clean energy. If you give my competitor a penalty... Eh, in the long run, sure. And in, in the long run, we're all dead to go with Keynes. But if you're telling me, you know, we got we got a, we got a decade or less to make a difference, and we got to build assets that are going to take two or three years to build. If you don't give those people a differential incentive today, you're using up two years that we don't have. I, I don't know, Congressman. Like, uh, let's go back in time to let's call it 2007 or eight or nine, uh, when we had no idea what the fracking revolution was going to produce. Uh, I know Amy will probably know the statistic better than I do, but coal was what fraction of the it was electricity about 50% generation? Fifty percent at that point. Yeah, and now it's a third. That happened very quickly, mm -hmm. uh, and I think when these price differences emerge, uh, you know, it's very in in, in uh, the deregulated states that can mean different things, but where there's bidding into a wholesale market. Uh, these guys got to produce low cost of energy and that penalty shows up on their, their cost of production and so, you'll see the low carbon so guys sneak in there then. So I, I totally agree with one caveat. Once the assets are built, we will always preferentially dispatch the lowest cost assets. And so what happened, we got, <clears throat> when the fracking revolution came along, we had the we got lucky in the fact that we had built 200 gigawatts of gas-fired power assets that were largely idle because Dynagy and Reliant and a bunch of companies went bankrupt because they, they weren't anticipating the price of gas was going to go to $12, mm -hmm. right? So they had built all those assets in the wake of deregulation, thinking this was going to make a ton of money. They then went bankrupt. And when, when fracked gas came along, we had assets that we could use. What I would submit to you is that we have not seen a correspondingly rapid investment in new gas assets in response to fracking. The, I've seen I mean, a lot of decommissioning of nuclear plants, a lot of decommissioning. That's like negative investment. No, there a lot of decommissioning of coal plants. There has, there has been a lot of decommissioning of plants that hit the end of their life, right? The, the, those coal plants were 40, 50 years old, right? Some and of so the nuclear plants are not. Uh, well, like the, the new coal plants are kind of a rounding or, or error in the fleet, right? We really... For all practical purposes, we haven't built new coal and new nuke and since the But there's some the nuclear 70s, power 80s. plants that have been shut down early. No, no, I, no, no, I understand. But what I'm saying is we had, a, we had an electric infrastructure that had way more capacity than we needed, which gave us a cushion that as those plants have retired, we had something we could replace it with. The question that we have going forward is how do we build the clean energy assets that are going to finish the job that that gas fleet started, Right. And the assets that we've built have been, you know, we built a lot of wind, 
largely in response to production tax credits, yeah. right? Which that is was a an, carrot. That's a carrot, not yeah. a stick, right? We've built a lot of solar um, on a megawatt basis, on a megawatt hour basis of smaller, also in response to tax credits, which is a carrot. The, the, it's not clear at all that we have built a lot of gas generation in response to cheap, cheaper gas, right? We've, we've dispatched existing generation in response to cheaper gas. So that's an interesting question if uh, the subsidy tax matters more. I would tend to think on average they're going to be have about equal value. You have practical business experience. Yep. Uh, I think one, one issue is that we don't have a lot of real-world examples to compare this against. I think one of the issues with a lot of the carbon prices around the world is that the prices are often too low. Do either of you know of some successful examples of we, we, Okay, we, let me just, before we do that, like, we do have a lot of evidence on people responding to prices. No. So, like, maybe not exactly the carbon price that you have in mind, but, like, nobody's building nuclear plants in the U.S., uh, and there's a really good reason. Uh, there, it would be a money-losing activity. And there's mm -hmm. nobody building lots of other things that would be money-losing activities. And in general, people build things that are money-making activities. And the power of a carbon tax... Uh, is that it is pre-specified. Uh, it's not going to move around as we find new gas deposits or you know cheaper coal or things like that. So it, in, in some sense, it's a permanent signal, unlike uh, resource prices. So, so we know Michael's policy of preference mm -hmm. is a carbon tax. Congressman, if you were... Um, President Kasten. Yes. Um, what you. would what would I'm finally getting the respect I deserve? <laughs> <laughs> what would the we, we haven't actually covered that uh, Congressman Kasten emails me with great regularity. Oh really? <laughs> what about? Uh, just asking for money. <laughs> I hear that's what that's what you guys do with a lot of your time. Yeah, um, uh, usually in the form of a carbon tax. <laughs> yeah. Right. Um, what What would be your policy that you would send to Congress if you were president? Um, so I'm actually working on one right now. Funny you should ask. The I, I balked a little bit when you said cap and trade, and this goes to you saying about the carbon price isn't high enough. I would submit to you that from Reggie, AB32, Kyoto. It has always proved to be easier than to reduce carbon than politicians thought it would be, and as a result, whether whether through a you know all the pressure in a cap and trade is to lower the cap in a way that won't create economic pain, and all the pressure in a carbon tax is to lower the price to a point which won't create economic pain, which means that the political pressure, given as it has always proved easier to reduce carbon than we think it it would be, has been that we never quite reduce as much carbon and the price is never high enough because of the political process and within the cap and trade construct. We've also gotten so caught up in the transition that we've over-allocated allowances, which have then flooded the market. And so I had some colleagues when Reggie was being negotiated, Regional Greenhouse Gas Initiative, that we were sort of too late to the table. Which is the New England states. Yeah. Um, we were too late to the table to impact it, but my staff is working this up to see if we can do it federally. To say, let's, uh, let's number one, build on... Um, some programs like Japan has this top runner program for vehicle efficiency mm -hmm. that automatically ratchets every year so that you're always readjusting as markets respond and you're not tying the improvement to the political cycle. And, and then let's do the whole thing on an output basis. So if we said we will give everybody an allowance, every generator will give you an allowance to pollute, the allowance will be tied to how many megawatt hours you make. So if right now the grid is a is little bit less than 1,000 pounds a megawatt hour of CO2, Let's give every generator 500, and we'll stipulate that it will be the lesser of 500 or 50% of the current grid, mm -hmm. grid emissions. 
now every solar plant has 500 megawatt, 500 pounds that they can sell. Every coal plant has about 1,500 they need to buy. Gas plant maybe has 500, you know, 600 they need to buy. The and you could then basically simply say you've got to report your megawatt hours to FERC or DOE every year anyway. So we'll figure out your allowance, and you can buy and sell behind the meter. You've gotten allowances to ease the transition, and you would have a self-correcting system that keeps ratcheting down over time, and you would give everybody a way to participate and move forward. I, there's some tweaks that you'd want to do to, to factor in thermal use so that you'd, you'd allow Cogen to participate and pick up the industrial sector. Personally, I don't think you worry much about transportation because I think, to our earlier discussion, you affect transportation with the price of the vehicle much more than the price of the of the of the fuel. What's the name of this type of policy? I, I need a I need a really cool acronym. I'm open <laughs> to suggestions. <laughs> I hear Green New Deal it's is really a, popular. Yeah. Yeah. You just yeah. call yeah. it the Green New Deal. I think it's taken yeah. or yeah, like rebranded. Yeah, yeah. yeah but, well, it's, but it's basically it's the way tradable permits really started before hmm. we got into all these allocation and grandfathering and auction systems, and you could you could make all this stuff work. Um, in a way so it's like a, what you're suggesting is like a independent of uh, the economic uh, state. So in other words, it would loosen when times were really good because there'd be more megawatt hours and it would contract a little bit. Uh, yeah, and, and you, you probably need to have some way to make sure that you know we continue to lower the total CO2 emissions, but it, it allows a way for efficiency to participate. It's technology agnostic and it, and it allows people to enter into bilateral contracts because w what I want is people who are in situations like me to go to their board and say, what do you have? I have a 20-year contract from a polluter. What's their credit rating? Okay, that will inform how much I'll factor this in. Um, that's very different than there's a tax. Will so, the next government keep the tax? I don't know. Okay, so let me just be inordinately picky, which is Please. very bad as a host since we are at the University of Chicago uh, and you are a guest here. And but we uh, like disagreement because yeah, hey, it's more interesting, yeah. well, at least in the media. Uh, I'm going to call that cap and trade per megawatt hour. Okay. Uh, that's not very catchy. That's a very <laughs> sexy His acronym. eyes are going to glaze over. <laughs> <laughs> and we but, but why per megawatt hour? The planet doesn't care about per megawatt hour. It only cares about tons of CO2. Um, and and, and a, to finish the thought, a pure cap and trade does not divide by megawatt hours. No, and it, it's, an, it's an algebraic issue to convert it back, but I think getting to an output-based emission standard, mm -hmm. we, have, we have hugely pernicious impacts that we don't talk about enough. The Clean Air Act right now, as it sits, discourages energy efficiency because, because so much of our environmental regulations are effectively on an input basis. You know, parts per million scales with fuel use. Mm -hmm. So the more fuel you burn, the more you're allowed to emit. Tying to the output ensures that you get you get the output that's tied to your performance it makes sure that we're not picking technologies because i would rather have I a understand. clean yeah. technology that's running 24 7 than one that's running two hours a day um the and and I, I take your point it's a fair criticism that you have to make sure that the total cap is reducing but that's to some degree that's an algebraic issue of saying how will we adjust in my example, the yeah. 500 every year. Yeah. Sounds like you will be getting some emails from Michael about that. <laughs> Look uh, forward to them. Very soon. Well, I think we are out of time with the podcast, but I want to say thank you both very much for uh, sitting down with me, and I look forward to seeing that bill uh, in Congress soon. Thank you, Amy. Thank you, Michael. Terrific. Thank you. Thank you for listening. Please make sure to subscribe to Off the Charts wherever you get your podcasts, including on Epic's website, at epic.uchicago.edu. Until next time, I'm Jeff McMahon.